Good morning. You can take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy, the third chapter. 1 Timothy, chapter 3. Today, we break away from our series on famous people of the Bible, and we're going to begin a study on church leadership. Church leadership. When you hear those words, church leadership, what immediately comes to your mind? Elders? Okay, good. I think for some people, when they hear the word church leadership, they just kind of tune out. Uh, They think, this doesn't sound all that exciting, so I think I'll miss the next couple Sundays or so. Or this sounds boring, or... Church leadership, well, that doesn't apply to me because I have no intention on becoming a church leader, so I can skip this part. Now, if those are your thoughts concerning this short series, I want to tell you that church leadership is absolutely vital to the life of this congregation. Absolutely vital to the life of any congregation, for that matter. And every Christian needs to learn all they can on this important subject so that strong, godly leaders can be raised up and selected to lead in the days ahead. One month from today, the second Sunday of November, will be our annual congregational meeting. We have that during the Sunday school hour, and so that is one month from today. And in that meeting, part of what takes place is we elect individuals who have indicated a willingness to serve in particular positions here at New Hope. And so it is absolutely vital that you know what the Bible teaches in regards to what type of people make good leaders. Good leaders are essential to any organization, to any business, to any team, and especially essential to the church, the body of Christ, because Bad leaders can destroy anything. Bad leaders can destroy anything. You recall what happened in Numbers 13 and 14 in the Old Testament? Moses had sent 12 men in to spy on Canaan. We know the little song, 10 were bad, 2 were good, all right? The spies return, 10 of the spies say, there's no way. It can't be done. Oh yeah, it's a wonderful land, and it's flowing with milk and honey, and it's just, just great, but there are giants there. In comparison to them, we look like grasshoppers. There is no way that we can conquer that land. Now, what had God already told them prior to this? I will give you the land. So when they say, there's no way, we can't take the land, well, that's true. They couldn't. God could, and he was going to. He was going to give it to them, but due to their lack of faith, they convinced the people, we can't do it. There is no way. And listen, folks, anytime you determine to do something other than what God tells you that he's going to do, you've missed the boat, and you've also missed the blessings. There were two spies, though, Joshua and Caleb. They said, yes, the land is great. Let's go. Let's take the land. God said that he would give it to us. Let's go take it. 
But those ten negative spies had so stirred the crowd with their pessimism and their negativism that the people refused to go in. And instead, they picked up stones to kill Moses and the faithful few that still wanted to obey God. And the result? Ten bad, negative leaders caused an entire nation to lose the blessings of God. Ten negative leaders caused an entire nation to miss the promised land. Ten negative leaders caused an entire nation to die unfulfilled in a barren desert. Bad leaders can destroy anything. So it's absolutely essential we choose good leaders to oversee and shepherd the flock here at New Hope. So with that in mind, let's take a look at how God has structured leadership in the church. The church is called the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Ephesians 4, 12. We've got it right there on the screen for you. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Church is called the body of Christ. Everybody, including your body, your physical body, must have a what? A head, right. Every body must have a head. And the head of the body of Christ, the church, is Christ Jesus himself. He is the head of the church. Colossians 1.18 says, he is also head of the body, the church. Now what does that mean? What does it mean for Christ to be the head of the church, the head of the body? Well, it means he's Lord. It means he tells us what to do. We follow his commands, his teachings, his instructions, which we find, of course, in the word of God from his words. It means just as the life of a human body depends on continued union with the head, so every Christian must maintain the connection to his or her head, which is Christ Jesus. We must accept orders from him. Just as the muscles of our body respond to the signals sent out from our brain, from our head, we must accept orders from Jesus. We, we obey his word. And if he's Lord, and he is, and he's head of the body, which he is, that should also have implications as to behavior in our manner of life, individually and collectively. Every thought and every deed that we do should reflect the head. Right? And that's Jesus. It should reflect the mind of Christ because he is the head. Can you say that about your life? That every thought and every deed reflects him? And according to Jesus' own words in Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority has been given me on heaven and on earth. He is Lord. He is the head of the body, the church. And no one dare try to usurp, to usurp that from him. 
Now, in the early church, there were some things that God gave that were temporary, such as the role of the apostles and the prophets. But there were those that were given that were permanent. And in particular today, we want to begin to focus in on our church leaders, our elders and deacons, and what the Bible has to say about those, those men. The Lord has given the church elders. The elders are also referred to in the Bible as shepherds and overseers and pastors and teachers and bishops. All those words refer to the work of the eldership. What are the responsibilities of elders? Well, in a general sense, based on 1 Timothy 5 verse 17, they are to direct the affairs of the church. It says there, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So they direct the affairs of the church. They oversee the affairs of the church. Christ has delegated his authority to them to do that. Now they are also again referred to as shepherds. And as shepherds, what do shepherds do for a flock? Yeah, they take care of it, they protect it, they lead it to where it needs to go. Sure, we, we know that. And so 1 Peter 5 verse 2 says, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, there's that word too, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. So elders are to direct the affairs of the church, they are to oversee the church because they are referred to as overseers. By the way, that word is a, uh, uh, a Greek word, comes from episkopos. That's the word for overseer. Epi, a prefix, means on, upon, or over. And skopos, or we might say skopos, when you think of a scope, you think of something that you what? Something that you look through, Yeah. Okay, it means to look or to see. And so with the prefix on, upon, or over, the word overseer means to look upon, to look over, thus an overseer, an overlooker, if you want to call it that. Albert McGee always taught us that an overseer is someone who looks upon for the purpose of looking after. And I think that's a great definition of an overseer. They're to oversee the church under the headship of Christ, and they're to take care of the sheep of God's flock. So those are elders. Now we also have deacons. The word deacon simply means a servant or a minister. They are servants in the ministry of the church. Acts chapter 6 tells of a need in the early church that was met by selecting men full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom that they could appoint to a particular task. And seven men were selected from among the people, selected by the people, and placed over this responsibility of caring for the needs of some widows at that time. Deacons have a service-oriented ministry, but they are still to be men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Now let me say this. We don't need to reinvent the wheel when it comes to leadership, the leadership structure in the church. 
We don't need to do that. God's Word gives us the proper structure, and we would do well to follow it. We don't need to reinvent the Word of God here. God knows what He's talking about when it comes to church leadership. And again, I cannot stress how, how important good leaders are. The wrong kind of leaders can destroy anything, and they can do it quickly. But good leaders can, t- can turn things around. The right kind of leaders. Men who love God. That's what God wants. You find someone who's already directing the affairs of his own life in a godly and biblical fashion. A man that's proven himself. A man that when the chips are down and the waves are high, that he can hold command of the ship and keep the thing upright. That's the kind of person that you want as a leader. And that's why it is very important that as you prepare to select and appoint leaders next month, you need to go to the Word of God and find out what God says. And so that's what I want us to do this morning. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we find in this chapter, and you can also find this in Titus chapter 1, but it's a list of characteristics that men who desire to serve as elders and deacons are to have in their life. Some people call these qualifications. And let me just say this as we dig into these. The elders are not a holier-than-thou group of men. They're not, all right? Every one of these characteristics that we'll look at in 1 Timothy 3 are to be evident in the life, they're to be evident in the life of elders and deacons but they are also commanded of every single believer elsewhere in the Scripture. In other words, don't sit there and say, well, an elder has to be this, an elder has to be that, but I don't have to be that way. Oh, yes, you do. Every one of these characteristics are enjoined upon every Christian elsewhere in the Bible. We are all to be this way. We are all to have these characteristics in our lives because, folks, these are Christian virtues. These are not eldership qualifications. All right? We're all to be this way. And these aren't listed here in order to keep people out. That's not why they're listed here. The reason why they're there is to keep those who are in well and healthy and growing and developing and maturing in their faith because... God knows what happens when you have the wrong leaders in charge. It can scatter the flock. And so God's priority is, yes, he wants to have the right kind of leaders that are biblically qualified, but God has a view to the flock. He has a view to the sheep. And he wants to make sure that the shepherds are right. Because if the shepherds are right, no matter what kind of problems the sheep have, you've got the right kind of shepherds, you can take care of them. So everyone, everyone is to exhibit these characteristics as we go through them. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes to this young evangelist and says, Here is a trustworthy saying. In other words, count on it. Count on it. Bank on it. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, Now, there's that word again. I've already explained that word. But the word overseer, the word elder, the word 
pastor and teacher and shepherd. Those words we've already talked about. That's the group of men that we're talking about here. All right. And he says, if you set your heart on being an overseer, he says, you desire a noble what? A noble work or a noble task, the NIV might say. I think the King James Version says, refers to the word office. I don't particularly care for that translation because it is a work. It is a task. It is something that you do. It is not just an office or a position that you hold. You have to desire the work. You have to desire the task. And the desire here is a willingness to do the task. A desire to take care of God's flock. A desire to care for people. It is not a desire for power. Not a desire for position. Not a desire for prestige. It's availability here. That's what it is. Not a power seeker, but availability. God, I'm available. If you want to use me to take care of your flock, I'm available and willing to do the work. Willing to do the task. Not just to hold an office. And you know what? If you're available and you're a holy vessel, God has a way of moving those available people into positions of great ministry. So when we're talking about someone desiring the task, we're talking about someone that has a willing availability to be used by God. And it is a noble task. He goes on in verse 2. And says, now the overseer must be above reproach. Above reproach. Some people get all bent out of shape on this one. And they say, well, you're not above reproach because you're not perfect. You're not sinless. You're not above reproach. And they mistakenly equate sinless and perfect with above reproach. But that's not what above reproach means. If perfection, sinless perfection, were the standard, then the guy who penned this couldn't live up to it, the Apostle Paul. He called himself the chief of sinners. The guy it was delivered to, Timothy, couldn't have lived up to it. So what's he talking about here above reproach? He's talking about someone who's an example or or a model to others. It's not perfection. It's not someone who says, hey, I've got it all whipped. I've achieved it. I'm the man, all right? And I don't know of a leader in this church who would say that. And if he did, he probably wouldn't be a leader. But but what's he saying here about above reproach? What does it mean? He's not talking about a sinless state. He's talking about a blameless state. And there's a big difference there. Above reproach means people are not able to lay blame against you. Like, well, that guy shouldn't be an elder because I saw him at the tavern getting blasted the other night. Okay? That's something that, that, that where, that's an occasion where you can lay blame. He's not blameless, all right? The word that's used in Titus uh, literally means without a handle. Handleless, all right? There's nothing that you can grab hold of and say, here's why he shouldn't be an elder. He's blameless. He's 
handleless. You can't lay blame. It does not mean sinless. And someone, it's someone who really seeks God, who really disciplines himself to be godly and holy and Christ-like. Are they perfect? No, they won't be. Nobody is except Christ. But that's not the idea. Not that men are perfect. So don't go there. Don't do that. I think sometimes we do a couple different things. I think in some churches, and I've seen this for myself, I think they've just taken the standard and thrown it right out the window to the point that if a man shows up regularly at church and puts some money in the offering plate, they think, let's make him an elder. And they just throw the whole standard out the window. Then that's not right. But you don't need to go to the opposite extreme and set the standard so high that no one can meet it and say they have to be perfect because no one is. When the Bible says above reproach, don't make that into something that it's not. Without blame, men that are sincerely trying to live to the best of their ability at what God has told them to do. Blameless is different than sinless. Then it says he must be the husband of but one wife. Literally in the Greek language that means a one woman man. In the culture in which the Apostle Paul lived at that time, thanks to Alexander the Great Hellenizing the world, making the Greek way of life the way of life for everyone, in that particular kind of culture men would marry in order to raise up children to carry on his posterity. But he would go outside the marital relationship to find his sexual satisfaction. That's the way that culture was. And I believe in this, in what Paul is teaching here and in Titus, that Paul is trying to prevent sexually promiscuous men from serving in positions of leadership in the church. A one-woman man. A man that is faithful to his wife. A man that loves his wife. It means he must be devoted to her. Now, one of the most common questions that comes up in regards to this is what about a divorced man? That's where above reproach comes in that we just talked about. Can blame be laid there? I think it always depends. I think you have to do this on a case-by-case basis. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all. I personally do not believe that a man that has been divorced I believe he can still serve as an elder as long as he's blameless. That's my own conviction. There was a time years ago where I might have taught the opposite of that than thought that a divorced person couldn't serve in the church period. But the more I understand the grace of God and the more I understand the word of God and the more I understand the forgiveness of God, the more I understand the language that God wrote wrote this book in, 
I don't think God is saying that if you've had a divorce, then you're done. And part of what I believe, I think it's been influenced, obviously, by those that have taught me through the years. Again, I make reference to Albert McGee, one of my New Testament professors at St. Louis. Albert said he knew a man in his congregation who got married. He and his uh, high school sweetheart got married right out of high school, had no concept of what marriage was all about. They were infatuated with each other. Uh, feelings got hurt, and within a year's time, they had divorced. He later, a few years later, married a Christian woman, this man did, and had been faithfully married to her for 40 years. And Albert's question to we, his students, was, how many years does it take to prove that you're a one-woman man? And I thought that was a good, a good question. His point was, that's what the word means, a one-woman man. And this man had lived with a, his, his, this wife for that long. He uh, was an elder in the church. But where's the time limit that says 10 years has to go by, or 15 or 20 years? How many years have to go by before we say, hey, you're valuable to us, and you're valuable to the body of Christ? I think we have to be careful about making this husband of one wife say that anyone that's ever been divorced can never be an elder. I don't believe it says that. Above reproach would cover that if there's blame to be placed and if it would endanger the flock or compromise the word of God. Then on a case-by-case -case basis it should be considered. I don't know that you can have one hard and fast policy on this. I think we need to be gracious and forgiving. Forgive one another just as God in Christ forgives you. Then he says it must be temperate. Temperate in verse 2. What does it mean to be temperate? How many of you remember when there used to be temperance societies and temperance unions? And all of those dealt mainly with one particular subject, right? Which was alcohol, right? Well, temperance simply means not given to excess in any area. And certainly that would cover alcohol as well. But it means that he doesn't go overboard or get carried away with anything. He, he's clear-headed. He's sober-minded. That covers a wide range of things. So temperate means not given to excess in any area, not getting carried away with things. He's temperate. He's steady, right? Then he says self-controlled. That's an easy one, isn't it? An easy one to define, but a hard one to do sometimes. But it just means a master of himself in every area. Paul told the Corinthian church, I will not be mastered by anything. What are you mastered by? And maybe you've not won the, the battle yet in every area, but you're fighting it so that you can be self-controlled, not letting anything master you. It's a word that also means prudent and thoughtful, but in control of yourself, in control of your faculties, temperate and self-controlled, those just go hand in hand. 
Then he says respectable. A word that means orderly, decent, modest. All of those words are connected with respectable. And I think you know what that means. And I think at times that we probably all do things that cause people to lose a little bit of respect for us. Right? I'm confident that I've done that. Have you ever said something or done something, and after you said or you did it, you thought, that's not what I wanted to do, or that's not what I meant to say, but it, it, it was already there, and those that saw you do it or heard you say it maybe lost a little bit of respect for you. I think we all do that. And I think we need to allow each other a little bit of a grace buffer. Uh, there may be a time when we handle the situation wrong. There may be times where we don't make right decisions. And let me tell you, I've made lots of mistakes as a preacher. And you try to pick yourself up and you learn from those. The leaders of this congregation maybe haven't always made the right choice or decision. I think they'd probably be the first to admit that. Maybe you lose a little bit of respect for us because of that. But Paul, what Paul is talking about here. With this word, he must be respectable. It's talking about people that have a well-ordered life so that others who look at that life based on the whole, not on the parts, but based on the whole, they would want to imitate and emulate that life. Because you're not going to find a perfect person. But someone who has a well-ordered life that's headed in the right direction, if I'm headed in the right direction, if I'm doing the right things, that's the key. Respectable. Then the last one we're going to look at today, because of time, is hospitable. What does it mean to be hospitable? Again, the word literally means, in the Greek language, a lover of strangers. A lover of strangers. You know, as a preacher, there are times where I get to overhear people and sometimes they say it directly to me, and that's even better, but after they have visited our congregation here on a Sunday or whatever, and they'll say, your people are so friendly. Boy, that makes a preacher feel good. I love to hear that. People that say, I think everybody in the church almost came up and shook our hand. And you know who ought to be leading the charge in doing that? Ought to be the elders. It ought to be the leaders of the church. Leading the charge and letting strangers and guests know you're welcome here and you are wanted here. That had better be leadership. Now, everybody can be involved in that, obviously. But leaders are to be hospitable. Lovers of strangers, willing, if necessary, even to open their homes to total strangers and invite them in for a meal or for some fellowship, uh, a time to get to know them. A leader needs to model that, to be the kind of person that has a total love and a total openness to strangers. Hospitable. Now let me say two things and then I'm done this morning. One of the reasons this is important, hospitable, is because of strangers who need to feel like they're wanted. They have that need. Everyone wants to know that they count, that they matter, and that they're important. But secondly, this is important for the leader too. Because if a leader has that kind of a heart where he will love strangers, 
I think he begins to understand the kind of heart that Jesus had. And that's the kind of leader that you want. The kind that will say and do what they think Jesus would say and do. If a leader knows how to love total strangers, just think how he's going to love the people that he knows. That's the kind of leaders the church has to have. Well, we're going to stop there today. We're certainly not done, but you come back next week. We're going to keep this wheelbarrow headed in the right direction, I hope, and go a little further in this study. But I hope this has been helpful to you. Who is the greatest leader the world has ever known? Jesus Christ. Who's the greatest servant the world has ever known? Christ Jesus. And I think that's why he was the greatest leader, because he was the greatest servant. If you need to come to know Christ today, if you need to make some type of public decision, if there are things you need to discuss about some type of decision you're contemplating, you meet me down front as we stand and sing, and if nothing else, we can set a time to get together and talk about those matters that are on your heart. Let's stand and worship together.